Uh, thank you very much, Ari. Thanks to all of you, and uh, it's great to see so many familiar faces here. Um, of course, the, the most familiar faces being uh, my parents, who are here with us today. There's the old expression, Ein Navi Biro. There is no prophet in his own hometown. Right, of course, it's hard because people say, little Ezekiel, oh, I remember him in Hebrew school. Uh, so if you need someone who can sort of uh, bring me down to size a little bit, my parents are here. Uh, but in fact, it's, it's a tremendous honor for me to have them here because no one has done more to support me over the years than they have um, and to support my pursuit of this career as well. In fact, they even read my entire book, which I took as going well over and above the call of duty. Um, so that, that it's, it's really an honor to, to have you guys here, um, especially since despite the fact that all of the information Ari sent me was that the weather would be beautiful, my parents drove here through a snowstorm. So I'm not, I'm not sure what that means, but I think there was some kind of false advertising about the lovely, sunny Southern California weather that I would have an opportunity to enjoy and not be in Allentown. I think it was colder last night here than in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Um, but anyhow, thank you for having me. And today we are in the second of a three-part series for thinking about religious fundamentalism. And today we'll situate Jewish fundamentalism within the broader phenomenon that we described last time. So I want to just review that a little bit. This category of fundamentalism that's used more deliberately and more specifically in scholarship and academic research about contemporary religious trends and I mentioned uh, Martin Marty and Scott Appleby, who had a series of studies about the phenomenon of fundamentalism. And they described it um, as an embattled form of spirituality that is responding to some perceived threat. And recall, of course, it's, it's not that important whether or not a given group actually is under threat. What's important for the construction of a fundamentalist religious ethos is the idea of a perceived threat. So the sense that there is a threat is what matters. Um, they regard themselves as defenders of true core beliefs and commitments. They see themselves as returning to a past moment in that religion that is pristine and reviving it um, against those who have corrupted it somehow. So in many ways, fundamentalist movements see themselves as purifying religious traditions from within. And in fact, one of the things that they seek to purify it from is the contamination of secularism. Secularism becomes a kind of enemy within fundamentalist religious discourses, and it's the intrusion of secular values and ideas into the religious community that they see as having destroyed that community, and it's in need of revival. And this revival takes the form of some kind of organized and actionable religious ideology. And then the question is, what kind of action is called for? And we see two basic trends. One is to withdraw, as we find with, I think the example I mentioned last time was the Amish or some Hasidic groups, where they seek to withdraw into their own communities and establish a purified religious life that is as insulated as possible from the secular world around it. But the other actionable ideology, the ideology that says, here's what has to happen and what we need to do, rather than withdraw, there is the tendency to seek to conquer. To conquer not only the broader religious community within which they live, um, and to <coughs> present their purified vision of that religion as the true one and attract followers to it, but also to try to conquer the broader society under which they live, including the governmental structure of the state under which they live. Um, this sometimes takes the form of a discourse of cosmic war. Uh, remember that the, the notion of cosmic war, Mark Juergensmeyer talks about this, a native Californian, um, describes this as an idea that, that considers conflicts between people as actually representative of conflicts between the forces of good and the forces of evil in the divine world. It, actually interprets human conflicts as being an earthly manifestation of a metaphysical reality that has been trans-historical, that for eons there's been a conflict between good and evil in the divine realm, and the conflicts between people in any given historical moment 
are understood or interpreted to be only the latest manifestation of this ongoing war. So it becomes a way of reading historical events. But most of the advocates of cosmic war regard themselves as living in a moment of the culmination of history. And that in that moment, they are privileged to serve on the vanguard of a divine army in which they can bring history to its full and final conclusion, to the fulfillment of ultimate divine promise that will transform the society in which they live and ultimately the world into a redeemed state. So these conceptions of conflict play out in different ways in different religious traditions. So I mentioned that for Christianity and Islam, we find some trends that are, broadly speaking, more global in their reach and aspiration for the kind of transformation of society that they, they seek to create. Whereas within Judaism, this is more focused on the state of Israel because Jews don't really advocate for a theocracy, the transformed, purified, anti-secular society outside of the land of Israel. It's really only within Israel that we find the kinds of dynamics that sometimes we can see with Christian and Jewish fundamentalism in other places around the world. There are really no Jewish fundamentalists who are seeking to transform the United States into a Jewish theocracy or a Torocracy, right? They're, they're, they have no aspirations to transform Sweden, but they do have aspirations to transform Israel. And this becomes the place where cosmic war discourse and the opposition to secular democracy and to more liberal forms of Judaism takes its uh, its most prominent place on the world stage. Um, in fact, these kinds of conflicts with those elements of the religious tradition that are regarded as tainted by the values of secular democracy, um, this is where the real conflicts in, in religious violence happen. It's not so much between traditions as it is within a given religious tradition. Fundamentalists struggle most against the members of their own religion who don't embrace their worldview because they see that as potentially the largest threat to their aspiration for success in some sort of cosmic war scenario. And so as soldiers for God, they may have articulated an external enemy against whom they struggle, but they often direct much of their energy towards a struggle against an internal enemy whom they regard as the true and most proximate threat to their, to their goal. And of course, one of the ways in which this threat is a threat to them is that for those who regard the world as a cosmic war and who see themselves to be soldiers for God, the threat would be the resolution of the conflict. To live in a world that isn't perceived as at war with itself, to live in a world in which there is no fight, in which they can serve as soldiers for God, is to live in a world in which their identity has no place. Conflict serves the interests of those who have constructed their whole sense of themselves around the idea that they are soldiers for God in a grand historical battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. To live under conditions of peace is to live in a circumstance in which that identity has no place to express itself. And so what we find is soldiers for God, cosmic warriors, tend to create violent conflict where there isn't enough of one for them to be able to express their sense of themselves as soldiers for God. When there isn't enough conflict, conflict can be created. And often this can be created through um, what was described last time as symbolic violence. Violence that's intended to express the power of one group against another. Periods of peace are often punctuated by these moments of what for lack of a better term we might call terrorism uh, because this helps bring into focus for the broader community the notion that there is some sort of conflict at play. So for many of the um, people who are involved in terrorist attacks against the United States, one of the things they often say is that they wanted to wake people up to realize that the world is at war and that there's conflict between good and evil and that they see themselves in not just a civilizational divide, but also in a, a, a grand battle 
in which they serve as soldiers for the forces of light against these forces of darkness. And, and the purpose of things like 9-11 is in part to bring this to the attention of those who don't actually see themselves in a circumstance of conflict. So it actually, it, it's necessary to create and then to prolong polarized violent conflict because this is the circumstance in which religious warriors in a cosmic war have a place to live out their sense of themselves. So of course this creates a very tricky situation when it comes to peaceful resolution. Cosmic wars are extremely hard to resolve. And the differences between a cosmic war, meaning one where the, at least some of the actors in that conflict see themselves as soldiers for God in a cosmic conflict, um, the terms are different than in a more secularized conflict, which is generally over um, access to territory, resources, and questions of sharing of power. The resolution of those conflicts can take place through compromise and other sorts of things where people don't have to lose their sense of themselves in order to resolve the conflict, that diplomacy is possible. In the case of cosmic wars, it's very difficult for the people involved in them to resolve them through some kind of compromise. Because how can you compromise with evil incarnate? This becomes difficult for people who regard themselves as part of a cosmic war to, to, to swallow. And then of course there's the question of what are you if the conflict is resolved? For people who have made that central to their identity, a resolved conflict is kind of like a loss of themselves. They prefer a world in which violent conflict is happening because in that context they know who they are and they know what they have to do. They have a heroic and meaningful contribution to make to the world when the world is in conflict. They are not sure what their contribution is when they go back to sort of the peaceful living of their lives. This actually becomes a challenge for some who are most centrally involved in the idea of being cosmic warriors. So now if we bring this phenomenon in contemporary religious fundamentalism to the question of Jewish religious violence, uh, it does actually have its expression, especially in uh, the contemporary state of Israel, where again, this is the place where the drive for a Jewish theocracy, for a Torahocracy, um, has meaningful and real life political and military implications. So as we discuss this, I want to kind of avoid as much as possible a debate regarding policy questions uh, with regard to Israel, Palestinians, and the, the current military and political situation, and instead focus as much as possible on how this dynamic that's not unique to Judaism or to Christianity or to Islam, it's a facet of contemporary religious discourse and ideology, how this plays its own unique role in some sectors within a subset of religious and Jewish society today. So last time we talked about the rise in Israel of religious Zionism in the 20th century, um, granting religious meaning to a movement that had originally been quite secular, and that this uh, started really in, in many ways with uh, Rav Cook's vision of the religious meaning of the settlement of the land of Israel and of the, the potential religious permissibility of religious Jews working together with secular Jews to build a Jewish state. Rav Abraham Isaac Cook um, had one vision of that, but his son Svi Yehuda Cook had another um, that became in many ways the basic material for a more radical vision of the religious mission for religious Zionism. So of course there's the idea of Israel being the reshit smichat latenu, the um, beginning of the initiation of the flowering of our redemption, but it led to a whole series of Jewish legal um, halachic real sort of uh, disputes in the, in the 20th century about what is the religious meaning of occupying the land of Israel and of living in the land of Israel. Um, is it a mitzvah? not only to live in the land of Israel, but for Jews to um, utilize force to occupy as much of the land of Israel as possible, and that once they hold that land, is it permissible ever to negotiate it away in the interest of creating a sustainable 
um, peaceful situation politically. And this was a question that has, of course, received considerable attention in some sectors of religious, the religious Zionist world. Um, but it has substantial implications for, um, for the political negotiation over land in Israel today. Um, holy territory is a very, very tricky thing to negotiate. Um, giving up land for peace in a circumstance where holding that land is regarded as a sacred duty um, is something that has always been a very, very problematic source of conflict between religions, especially in the Middle East. Jerusalem has been the site of considerable conflict. And what's remarkable about Jerusalem is that it, it actually has very little intrinsic value. There's no oil there. Um, there's, uh, I'll divide, right, there's no oil in Jerusalem. Uh, there's, it, it doesn't have gold mines. Uh, it's not sitting on top of a large reserve of diamonds. What Jerusalem has is religious symbolic value. Um, and that value is significant for Jews, Christians, and Muslims. And as a result, uh, Jerusalem has been the site of considerable conflict, and, and the, the, the land of Israel has been the site of considerable conflict. But as the 20th century developed, and as the state of Israel developed, especially as it experienced certain kinds of military success, we start to find a real shift in some forms of religious Zionist discourse. So in the wake of the Six-Day War, for example, um, Yehuda Amitai of the Gush Emunim, the Gush Emunim and the um, Merkaz Arab, these were, were religious Zionist groups. Gush Emunim no longer really exists in its current form, uh, in, in its, its previous form. But Yehuda Amitai was one of the, the important voices in, this, in this, uh, this movement, especially in the wake of the, the successes of the, this 1967 war. And in, in that context, he, he says the following, he notes, the dreams of normalization, national normalization, have been exposed as hollow, but there exists another Zionism, the Zionism of redemption, whose great announcer and interpreter was Rav Cook. Zionism has not come to resolve the Jewish problem by establishing a Jewish state, but is used instead by the high providence as a tool in order to move and to advance Israel towards its redemption. Its intrinsic direction is not the normalization of the people of Israel in order to become a nation like all the nations, but to become a holy people, a people of the living God, whose basis is in Jerusalem and a king's temple is its center. What is revealed in front of our eyes is the beginning of the fulfillment of the vision of the prophets regarding the return to Zion. The steps are the Messiah's. And though these, though these steps are accompanied by pain, the steps are certain and the course is clear. It is time Zionism becomes the Zionism of redemption in our consciousness too. What Amitai is discussing here is a movement away from the notion of a sort of normal nation state with practical political purposes. Um, this notion of the, the, the movement of Jewish history into the mainstream of history, that they become a nation state among other nation states engaging in the same kinds of political and historical processes as affect other nation states. And it was the idea of normalizing Judaism rather than having them be this kind of unusual case of statelessness within Western society. And he argues this is a mistaken conception of Israel but rather he wants to have a more cosmic and theocratic vision of the state as fulfilling uh, biblical and ultimately messianic promise. Those of you who have been to the, the series on Jewish messianism probably note this idea of the footsteps of the Messiah. Remember what those, that means, the, the footsteps of the Messiah? Anybody from that, from that class who's here? What, what would one expect in the footsteps of the Messiah, this idea? Yeah. Apocalyptic destruction and just a terrible uh, time. It gets worse before it gets better. Right. That this is the it's the, the the darkness before the dawn. And this notion of the footsteps of the Messiah is mobilized here to signify the religious meaning of violence and suffering. Both of the violence that Jews suffer as they are involved in this conflict, and of the violence that Jews must engage in as they become part of this conflict. One of the things that religious Zionists had to do was give meaning to military action. And what is suggested here is the military action that they're involved in is part of a grand messianic scheme. It's part of a cosmic conflict in which they serve as soldiers for God. 
and in which the violence in which they engage and which they suffer is not simply part of a political process whereby people are negotiating the sharing of territory, right? That's the secular narrative. It's a religious narrative where this violence is of cosmic significance and in fact is articulated as part of the culmination of a historical process in which messianic redemption occurs. So um, this narrative has the advantage of giving meaning to historical events in a very compelling way and also in a very sort of traditionally Jewish way of sorts. It associates it with biblical promise and legacy and it also associates it with the promise of messianic redemption along with certain trends in rabbinic discourse about the apocalyptic nature of what messianic redemption looks like before it comes to its full culmination. Um, this has been an advantage for religious Zionist discourse for some people because it gives such compelling meaning to the experiences of the state and to the experiences of, of war and violence. It's also been able to co-opt less messianic and less religious uh, people into this narrative because it supports this general idea of biblical legacy and it also is connected to a strong nationalism and notion of the protection of the state. So interestingly, religious Zionism in the 70s and 80s in particular started drawing in supporters who were not themselves orthodox or didn't embrace the other religious views of religious Zionists, but their religious Zionist ideal of the religious meaning of religious conflict in Israel, this actually became attractive to a broader swath of Israeli uh, and Jewish society. And this more messianic vision that they have is in keeping with Maimonides' vision of what redemption looks like in many ways. Uh, so again, for those who are at the, the, the course on messianism, Maimonides' idea of what the Messiah would look like was very mundane in this worldly, in which he says that the Messiah would be someone who is a diligent student of Torah, who both observes and teaches the observance of Judaism, and leads the Jewish people to the land of Israel, and is able to fight the battles of God, and create political independence in the land of Israel, and especially if they're able to build the third temple and reinstitute the kingship of the line of David in the land of Israel and in Jerusalem, then he says, that person is the Messiah. So it's less apocalyptic, but in some ways more this-worldly and potentially political. And the idea that can be drawn from that is Jews who return to the land of Israel and rebuild the Davidic kingdom and the third temple, this is what the Messiah looks like for Maimonides. So that the very this-worldly activist notion of messianic redemption becomes important in the construction of some elements of modern Israeli religious Zionism. There's also, of course, important biblical legacies about religious wars, right? The Bible has many, many, far too many to, to, to list or quote uh, examples of religious wars where part of the idea of the fulfillment of the covenantal promise of God to the people of Israel is their success in battle, like the battles of Jericho. Or, of course, there's the famous story of Amalek, which we mentioned last time, which is often utilized in discourse about the religious enemies of the Jewish people, or at least the religious meaning of their enemies, the idea that they are Amalek. And, of, and what is the, the, the commandment given by the people of Israel to Amalek, since this was my, my bar mitzvah portion? Right, that they should, they should be wiped out. Right, everyone though, men, women, children, cattle, the whole shebang. And so this uh, also relates to a notion of chosenness, but chosenness taken to an extreme. So there's both the legacy of the, the biblical battles that are a sign of covenantal promise, and there's also a notion of chosenness. And here the Kabbalistic idea of chosenness is, is understood in very extreme form. So where Kabbalists do have this idea that Jews are an incarnation of God, that their soul is literally of the substance of God, and that through their bodies they manifest the divine self in the world, 
we see modern religious Zionists uh, of various forms who utilize this as a way of understanding the difference between Jewish bodies and non-Jewish bodies, and therefore the kinds of conflict that can happen with violence between Jewish and non-Jewish bodies. So Rabbi Yitzchak Ginsburg, I, I studied this in another talk, my apologies to people who are hearing this quote twice, uh, described the, the, the real difference between Jews and non-Jews. Um, and he said, if you see two people drowning, a Jew and a non-Jew, the Torah says you save the Jew first. And if every simple cell in a Jewish body entails divinity, it is a part of God. And every strand of DNA is part of God. Therefore, there's something special about Jewish DNA. If a Jew needs a liver, can you take the liver of an innocent non-Jew passing by to save him? The Torah would probably permit that. Jewish life has an infinite value. This is the idea of Jews being really a different substance than non-Jews, that their bodies are different. Interestingly, Kabbalists were less interested in the difference between Jewish bodies and non-Jewish bodies than they were in the difference both between the origins of their souls and the religious meaning of Jewish behaviors, of Jewish ritual observance. Here the understanding is understood as a difference in the actual substance of Jewish bodies. To take another example from Menachem Mendel Schneerson, um, he describes uh, how uh, the difference between Jews and non-Jews is not simply one, quote, in which a person is merely on a superior level, but rather between two totally different species. This is what needs to be said about the body. The body of a Jewish person is of a totally different quality from the body of members of all other nations of the world. A non-Jew's entire reality is only vanity. It is written, and the stranger shall guard and feed your flocks, Isaiah 61.5. The entire creation of a non-Jew exists only for the sake of Jews. So these kinds of ideas um, do inform how religious Zionists then understand the meaning of violent conflict and the destruction of non-Jewish bodies in the course of violent conflict. It's a religious obligation, as they see it, when it becomes necessary in order for Jews to can, can, to retain control over what they call greater Israel. Now there's a, a number of different uh, descriptions of the borders of the land of Israel in the Bible, um, but at a minimum, the advocates of greater Israel argue that everything from the West Bank uh, to the Mediterranean, that this is all Israel, that it's necessary for Jews to occupy that territory, and that it is halachically an obligation to retain it, and it is a transgression of halacha to give this land over to non-Jews for any purpose. Moreover, they regard the occupation of this land as part of a process in what is ultimately a cosmic war between Jews and non-Jews in which they seek to advance a messianic agenda of the reestablishment of the kingdom of Israel. They want to have, as they say, the land of Israel according to the Torah of Israel, and that this has messianic purpose. It's part of a process of bringing about redemption. To give land up for peace, therefore, in a negotiated settlement doesn't just violate halakha in the way that buses running on Saturday violates halakha, another controversial subject. It's counter to a grand historical narrative in which they see themselves as being at the forefront of pushing history to its ultimate biblically promised conclusion. And it's that cosmic war thinking that creates a very, very tense dis distance between um, different political camps within Israel and has real implication both for military policy and for the actions of those who are advocates of greater Israel. Um, this, so the, the Gush Emunim no longer exists as a coherent uh, religious group anymore in Israel in, in the proper sense, but it has become a larger, more diffuse movement, the settler movement. Now, there are many people who live in the West Bank, over 360,000 people live in the West Bank, largely because the housing is more affordable there. Um, and there's other people who live there for political purposes and not for religious ones. But there is a substantial contingent for whom living in the West Bank, establishing settlements, and establishing new settlements, like we find with hilltop youth movements and others who create outposts and illegal settlements, the idea is to hold on to as much territory as possible to create the facts on the ground, not just because they see this as politically expedient or important for security reasons, but because they see this as part of their contribution to a cosmic war in which they are soldiers for God and in which 
they are doing things that are important in this final culminating moment of Jewish history as they see it. It's a very heroic vision, and it's one that is of ultimate importance for them. In fact, it's one to which they've staked their very identities, and it becomes a much more intractable political problem. Um, to take one example of a, a group that regards their place in Jewish history in this manner is the Temple Mount Faithful. Um, this group, you, they have an interesting website, you can read about them, um, and they have the, the following vision of the Messianic process. They say uh, that the Messianic process will happen, quote, first, through the foundation of the modern state of Israel and the miraculous victories that God gave the people of Israel in wars against 22 Arab states. Second, is the regathering of the people of Israel from all over the world to the promised land. Third is the liberation and consecration of the Temple Mount. Fourth is the building of the third temple. And the final step is the coming of the King of Israel, Messiah ben David. So here they see the arrival of the Messiah as happening at the end of this process of the building not only of a state of Israel, but of a third temple. Um, their conception of the state itself is described in the following way as well. They say, quote, Israel is the elect nation of God, sovereign chosen for his purpose, sovereignly chosen for his purpose as a vessel through which redemption will be accomplished. The land of Israel, through its biblical borders, was given specifically to the people of Israel and to no other nation. And here they cite Exodus 23:21. Israel is not permitted to give any of this land to any group for any purpose, since the land is a grant to Israel from God himself. Any division of the land and the giving of it to another people represents a breach of the covenant with God, citing Leviticus 25.23 and Ezekiel 48.14. It is the distinct privilege and responsibility of every Jewish person to return to the land of Israel and to directly participate in the redemptive process. Anyone not exercising this privilege will lose it. I'm not, I'm not sure what that means. Um, finally, they say the Temple Mount and Land of Israel faithful movement is dedicated to the fulfillment of every detail of God's commandments as recorded in the Tanakh. So such thinking has been involved in a lot of forms of Jewish violence. This idea of participating in this grand cosmic scenario, everything from Baruch Goldstein in the West Bank to other semi-rogue operators in the West Bank who have been responsible for um, various forms of, of violence, random killing of Palestinians, destruction of property, and other things, which have actually been a, a cause of some considerable concern to Israeli security forces. There, there was the famous example of the uh, Bat Ayin Yeshiva boys who tried to blow up a Palestinian uh, girls' school in Jerusalem, but they, they actually they got caught in the process and were jailed, um, and, and they had substantial support among some uh, of the, the religious Zionists in the settler movement. Baruch Goldstein, his, his grave is treated like a shrine from some in the settler movement. Yitzhak Ginsburg, who I cited, uh, he, he wrote a, a chapter in a book supporting Baruch Goldstein and what he did. Um, there's also the, the use of certain elements of the, the rabbinic heritage and biblical heritage to create powerful justification for Jewish religious violence. One example, of course, is the assassination of Rabin came in the wake of those who referred to him as a rodef. Does anyone know what, what is the, the halakhic category of a rodef? See a couple of, someone, someone, tell us. Right, a, a pursuer. It's a, it's, it's, it's a halakhically defined category of a person who is in the process of trying to kill another person. And the halakhic obligation for everyone who is around and who sees this is that they must kill the pursuer before the pursuer kills the person whom they're after. And to refer to Rabin as a rodef was that by compromising with Palestinians, the idea was that he was, he was killing Jews, he was killing the state of Israel, and it was an obligation to stop him. And this then um, took the form of an assassination. And there was a real moment of, of soul searching afterwards about what this discourse does and the kinds of violence that can come from it. Um, but that's been a very incomplete process. And in the years since, we find lots and lots of very um, extreme and violent discourse when talking about the question of the state of Israel and uh, the, the issue of, of territorial compromise. Um, one vocal advocate for the Greater Israel uh, Movement says the following. Uh, he says, quote, the difference between the Jewish people and other nations is so great that they do in fact constitute two entirely different species. 
In the same way that God differentiated between animate and inanimate objects, he also made a distinction between people and created a higher species, the chosen people, the people of Israel. And that this then is the basis for his, his support for a, not, not only just a, a, the, the territorial greater Israel, but of the need for violence in the pursuit of that goal and that this is justifiable. Um, another example of this is Mayor Kahana, of course, the, the American-born rabbi who became an outspoken, not only supporter of greater Israel, um, but uh, a radical voice in the Israeli political, uh, political world. He eventually became a Knesset member and argued that not only is it necessary for the Jewish state of Israel to be Jewish according to the, the laws of the Torah instead of democratic, secular principles, but also that non-Jews either need to be expelled from Israeli territory or they have to agree to live as um, very second-class citizens or second-class residents and not as citizens. Uh, he, he made a few um, arguments that, for instance, non-Jews should not be allowed to reside in Jerusalem at all, uh, that Jewish citizens of Israel should not be allowed to marry non-Jews even outside of Israel, Right, many Israelis go, for instance, to Cyprus, right, the, the island of love, as they call it, uh, when they want to uh, pursue marriages that aren't um, mediated for them by the Rabbanut. And these marriages are recognized. When they happen outside of Israel, when they come back, those marriages are recognized. And, and uh, Kahana argued that this, it was very important that this practice stop, that it should be a law that all citizens of Israel be Jews, and that they only be allowed to marry other Jews that all schools should be segregated between Jews and non-Jews, and that there should be jail time for any extramarital relations between Jews and non-Jews. But of course, the jail time for the non-Jew would be much more. Nonetheless, they argue that, he argued that it should be at least two years for Jews who have extramarital relations with non-Jews. And that all mixed community institutions, so um, uh, institutions that have a, a community that is a mixture of Jews and non-Jews should be abolished, and any trips that send, especially Jewish youth, outside of the land of Israel, uh, where they stay in the homes of non-Jews or interact too much with non-Jews, that the, these uh, should, should also be abolished. Um, so his views were adamantly racist, and eventually he was kicked out of the Knesset um, for his racist views. He was seen as being outside of the mainstream of Israel. But his supporters, the Koch party, still persist. Um, and this is all reflective of a tension not just within the Jewish world, but a phenomenon within contemporary fundamentalism more broadly, where there's a concern that secular democracy will lead to a society in which the rule of God is absent. And there are those who are dissatisfied with living under those circumstances. Religious radicalism and support religious violence in Israel today is part of a broader trend of those who want to resacralize the state by supporting a theocracy, in the case of Israel, a torocracy. They don't wish to live in a democracy. They see democracy as inimical to the religious life that they want to live. Instead, they want to see the religious law, how, however that is constructed, that they advocate as the policy of the state. And they wish the enforcement mechanisms of the state to make sure that that becomes the life of the country in which they live. And this precisely is the dynamic that Yishayahu Leibowitz, a really important um, Israeli scientist and Israeli uh, philosopher as well, um, who I understand that Dr. Vilner actually studied with him in... Yes, uh, but I studied organic chemistry with This guy was incredible. He was an organic chemist. He was a neurophysiologist and also a philosopher. Is there anything he didn't do? I bet he was a great cook. Uh, he did a lot of things. Um, he, he was strictly observant uh, and, and orthodox, but he vehemently opposed the very notion of religious Zionism. So much so that he became sort of a lightning rod for controversy. Uh, he argued that ascribing religious meaning to the state of Israel and the land of Israel was idolatry. Um, he even called the, the, the Kotel, the Western Wall, had become a grand sort of global Jewish disco. He said that this, this was the wrong-headed conception of what the land of Israel is. The land of Israel and any nation state is for the body, not for the soul. And the, the sort of the core of his argument about the problem with the religious meaning of territory is that when it leads to the advocacy for a theocratic state, 
He said all religious states become fascist states. And of course the reason why is that religions, despite their presentation of themselves as homogeneous, sort of universally accepted ideas about how life and, and, and even public policy um, should, should be conducted, the truth is religions are, are, are famously diverse and fractured. They're actually a pluralistic constellation of different worldviews that we group together under names like Judaism or Hinduism. Um, I don't know who forwarded the article about Hindu nationalism in India and the Hindu nationalist parties who want to create a 100% Hindu India. But of course, this, I mean, this is impossible. India is not only a place where you have lots of Muslims and Christians, but who's Hinduism? is going to be the Hinduism of India. Hinduism is such a diverse thing that even the word is a creation by Western colonial powers. I mean, the, the, the Hindus weren't calling themselves Hindus uh, in, in India before the British showed up. It's, it's a very complicated thing. So by definition, and this is sort of the secret of, re, of uh, religious nation states, they need a fascist mechanism to utilize government and military control to assert the religious identity of the ruling party because that religious identity and those religious policies will reflect only the views of a small portion of society. And they become very, very unpopular. And this is why religious states need a mechanism of enforcement because they don't actually represent a broad swath of the view of the society. They tend not to be represented either of the people who are more religious than them or less religious than them or just differently religious than they are. Religious states have to be fascist states. They don't function well. And his fear was, Yeshayahu Leibowitz's fear, was that this could be the fate of Israel if it doesn't recognize the importance of a secular democracy to create a Jewish state for the purposes of the protection of Jewish bodies so that they can go and pursue their religious goals privately in the private sphere, that this could in fact really spoil the Zionist dream of a secular Jewish democratic nation state. As complicated as that is, he thought it was possible and important. Um, he was also very opposed to the, the occupation of the West Bank, um, and he was very concerned about the rights of Israeli Arabs as full citizens of the state. These things have turned out to be very difficult and sticky problems in contemporary Israel. And I think it's because precisely of some of the things Leibowitz feared, that the trends of religious radicalism and religious fundamentalism in the modern world are ones in which religious meaning is assigned to the idea of the state and to the meaning of its military conflicts in ways that make those conflicts worse. So I should tell my parents, I'm, I'm sorry, normally I don't have such a depressing topic, and you, you happen to come on a day uh, where th that might be the case. Uh, um, sometimes I talk about Kabbalah, <laughs> talk about medieval questions that, 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 that don't have the same more depressing implications. Uh, but I think this is one of the ways that the construction of religious identity, which is a, a core interest of my research, plays out in the contemporary world, unfortunately not unproblematically. So thank you very much for your attention, and I'm happy to have any questions. Mrs. Vilner. Isn't it that Netanyahu did now Yeah, this was a, a recent bill that was debated and, and took various forms and various drafts, but the idea of asserting that Israel, though a constitutional democracy or a secular democracy in theory, should still be inherently Jewish, um, which was also really about trying to renegotiate the place of Israeli Arabs um, in Israeli society. And interestingly, the, the president, Yair Lapid, who has been a, a native-born son of the Israeli right, but not a religious Zionist, has been very, very disturbed and has been a vocal critic, not only of that policy, but of what he sees as the, um, the segregationist policies of Israel that create a, a real second-class citizen status for Israeli Arabs. Um, and he argues that essentially Jews would not tolerate the 
kind of treatment that Israeli Arabs receive in Israel if Jews were treated that way in any country in the world. And he's, he's been very, very critical of this. Um, and it's in the context of that debate that this Jewish state uh, uh, bill was advanced. But I think it's in the context of a broader debate, not even just in Israel, but in contemporary religious discourse generally about whether or not people are content to live under the sort of rule of a secular democracy or whether they have a desire to, as they see it, re-sacralize their, their society and their state by advocating a theocracy. Um, and and that's, a, that's a, a very, I think, a tricky problem and one that will be defining conflicts in the 21st century perhaps in ways that I think that in Israel this could be a more defining conflict than the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. Yes? Um, I have children who are Orthodox and grandchildren who are ultra-Orthodox. And we don't talk about politics, Israel or not, because we, our worldviews diverge. But what I'd like to hear is your worldview, if you would put on a pair of glasses and see the future, where do you see Israel in either 2025 or maybe 2050. What does Yogi Berra say that, that <laughs> predictions are tricky, especially yeah, about the future? I really. Assuming the Messiah does not arrive. Uh, that's all I'm about. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I mean, when I, I teach a course called Religion and Violence, and the students are all really interested in it, and I find it really depressing, and I just sit at home in the dark and weep. Um, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't really know how this problem, I don't see a resolution to this problem. It strikes me as a, a matter that will be managed rather than solved. Um, this way of creating religious identity is something that's uniquely modern and is part of how people think through and cope with the, the conditions of alienation that they experience in contemporary secular society. For many, they find secular nation states and the narratives of, of, of secularity to be really dissatisfying. When they say, well, conflicts are basically fights over land and power, sorry that a lot of your family was killed in the process, right? That's a, that's a deeply dissatisfying narrative. I've heard that from people in Israel. Well, if we had five or 10 deaths a year, we'd live with it. But the kids who are living on the West Bank say, no, 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 that's just corrupt, you know, just damage. We want greater Israel, we want it forever, and we expect to get it. And deaths in the, con in, the, in the context of pursuing that goal become meaningful. Deaths when they say, well, this is just, you know, people fight over land and power and access to resources, and uh, what can you do? That, that, that's something that some people, at least it seems, it's a facet of human culture in, in the contemporary world, that that's dissatisfying to them. And so I think that that will continue to be the case. People will be dissatisfied with that view of the world and they will continue to prefer, in some cases, to be um, warriors for God. But I, I don't see a Torahocracy happening in Israel because I think that, like most religions, um, Jews are just not well behaved uh, enough. They're not, they're not coherent enough and cohesive enough to rally around a theocratic regime and to support it for any period of time. The, the secret of theocracies is that they're all inherently politically unstable. But when the Jews revolted against Rome, finally they brought their house down upon themselves. So, finally it imploded. It's, so. it's unstable because yeah. it, it doesn't know how to accommodate, it's too rigid to accommodate um, its, its, its own sort of complexity. And that, that will be a problem to manage. But again, I think that they'll continue to be a persistent minority um, in general in nation states around the world. In the case of Israel, whether they'll continue to be a minority or not, I don't know. 50% of kindergarten children today in Israel are Haredim. And the, you know, the, this is a big difference from even 1990. So uh, the demographics, I think, are, are an interesting question. Yes. Uh, I was, when you were talking at the beginning about Jewish religious violence and the idea of redemption, it brought to mind the Crusaders to me. And I wondered if you'd ever thought about that because like in France, uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine, in order to get soldiers to fight and go to Jerusalem, she had to tell them that they were doing it for God and they were gonna be redeemed. And it was kind of on the same order of this. And this came later and I just, 
wondered if you had ever made any association there. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, the, the, the Crusades is one of those um, sort of paradigmatic examples of the notion of a holy war. But it's one that also has very practical purposes because if you're, especially if you're the king of England, what you really dream about isn't just controlling the Holy Land, it's, you know, what, what people really think about is uh, the port of, of Akko and, and the, the benefits of taxation that, that, uh, that might come with that. Um, but yes, that's a great example of what motivates the, 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 this kind of thinking. I will say goodbye to the Milners, I, even though we'll hear soon that his experiences with Yesha leave this. Yes. Thinking uh, and doctrine can have a wider appeal to less radicalized people if it helps explain or um, perhaps speaks to concerns and fears they have about what's going on in the world. And it seems to me with regard to Israel, as long as there is a, an enemy or a threat that seeks the destruction of Israel, that that may drive the non-fundamentalists to embrace or or accept the more fundamentalist doctrine because of this perceived enemy that's a threat to everyone, even those who are not radicalized and, and fundamentalist. And so it's, it's the existence of that, that threat, someone who wants to destroy Israel in general, that may inadvertently perhaps create a larger fundamentalist force. And, and create perhaps a larger set of concentric circles that expand outward from the more intense um, fundamentalist camps in Israel and, and create more sympathy for some of their, their, their ideas and policies that they advocate. Um, and then the question would be, in the absence of that, what would happen to the fabric of Israeli society? Right? And, and they, they would be stuck sort of struggling with the same question that exists in, in many secular democracies, which is a, a dispute about who and what becomes the narrative behind law and order within a state. Is it about the you know, emerging from the will of the people, or is it to be a reflection of the will of God? And, and that's, that's actually a very difficult dispute to resolve. Um, so there's no question that a violent context allows that world, fundamentalist worldview to sort of thrive. But this is part of the reason why um, both Israeli Jewish fundamentalists and Palestinian Muslim fundamentalists kind of need each other because they create the polarized, violent context in which both of them have a, a, a narrative that seems powerful and meaningful. Um, it's very much to the advantage of radical terrorist group for them to spark violence and create a broader military conflict because those contexts are one in which they become very powerful and they look credible. So violent contexts do give rise to um, violent religious narratives and, and makes them seem, you know, credible. Yes, it does. Okay, a couple more questions. Yes. It's my understanding that Christian fundamentalists are strongly supporting the Israeli Jewish fundamentalists because it fits into their narrative where there will be the rebuilding of the temple and a false messiah, and then the struggle between the Muslims and the Jews, and then the true messiah will come from that. Yeah, so we didn't even get into that, but that's a really interesting <laughs> phenomenon of a different messianic agenda that's a Christian one, but has created these sort of odd temporary bedfellows between um, the sort of the Israeli religious right and the, the much, much larger um, Christian uh, fundamentalist right that is, a, is, is the most substantial source of support in many ways for, um, as a lobby for Israel, a source of financial support and of military support. Um, and indeed, they do have an idea that, that Jews have to sort of be ingathered into Israel, live in a very embattled state, and that this will be part of their own, several different versions of their own um, conception of messianic redemption. And, and then from the, the Jews living in the land of Israel, uh, be at the time of the tribulation, there will be 144,000 evangelists who will spread throughout the world and harvest souls for Jesus against the, the efforts of the Antichrist. And then in the final culmination of the battle in the land of Israel, all Jews who don't accept Jesus will die in a sort of 
grand fiery cataclysm and and then the the new Jerusalem will be established and and the return and reign of Christ will, will live forever um, so de definitely I think that there's a divergent worldview there in terms of what's going to happen at the end but they they do they do converge right now in terms of what should be happening presently and and what kinds of political and military policies they advocate um, and it's it's a really remarkable phenomenon of, of, of different religious worldviews converging in the real-life politics and, and military policies of, 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 an actual, of an actual place of, of real historical importance. Right. So, uh, gentlemen, let's do one and two from back to front. Uh, so, uh, I wanted to ask about the fact that the um, yeshiva students don't have to serve in the military and how that fits in with this vision. Um, or until recently, yes. And, and the other piece of that is, was there any ever thought of Israel being a democratic uh, kingdom, that there would be a king when it was established, you know, like England or Sweden, or, you know, where there, was there any, any thought of that when it was originally established? So for the latter one, no, not in any serious way. There was much more serious consideration of it being a socialist state. Um, and the majority, the vast, vast majority uh, of, of political energy uh, surrounding the establishment of the State of Israel was completely secular. Um, uh, you know, I mean, Herzl thought that, of course, they would, they would speak German. <laughs> so the, the, these, the, the, that, was, that was not what they were imagining. But um, it, it is still the case that many yeshiva students are given an exemption, and those tend to come from um, the Haredi contingents of Israeli society who are not religious Zionists, and therefore they're, they're not comfortable um, with at least they're not religious Zionists in the in the sense that the sort of um, latter incarnations of the Gush Emunim are. So some of them might really support the idea that the Israeli military should do the things that it's doing, but they don't want their sons to be the ones to do it. Others are actually anti-Zionist, right? So we have Haredim in Israel, like the Notori Karta, who are anti-Zionist. Uh, that's different from the other like Hezder Yeshiva movement and other forms of religious Zionism. Um, who are, they regard it as a very important thing for, um, for their sons to be, to be in the military, to be officers. They regard this as religiously meaningful to them. Yeah. Have, have any paramilitary or um, military, militaristic, fundamentalist groups achieved their goals? And what happens when they do achieve their goals? What does it look like? So not fully, right? They're, 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 none of these groups can say we've reestablished the kingdom of Israel, uh, the, the third temple has been rebuilt, and Israel is a Torocracy. They, they are tireless advocates in many ways of these policies, but they haven't, they haven't actually come to fruition. So their criticisms of the state as overly secularized, uh, their criticisms of secular Jews as not fulfilling their obligations to pursue biblical promise and, and to establish the state as a, as a torocracy, this we find uh, uh, you know, as part of, of how they understand their relationship to the state. It's a very adversarial relationship in many ways. And no one has succeeded, for instance, in building the third temple. That would be, I think, quite bad. <laughs> um, that if the Temple Mount Faithful were to succeed in blowing up uh, the, the Dome of the Rock or the Mosque of Al-Aqsa, um, I, I, I really shudder to think what would happen in, in those circumstances. So we don't, we don't know what, what this would look like for them. I think it would look very different than how they imagine it. Not limited to Israel. In the world, it, there have been some microcosms where Arab groups, for instance, have, um, at least in a limited area, achieved their goals of establishing well, Iran. Iran. I see what you're asking. Iran. Sort of like Iran. Right? And there they've, they've had to kind of scale back their expectations where there's only certain places where the regime is effective in asserting its religious control, Saudi Arabia to some extent as well. And what happens is that these regimes, by necessity, become fascist states. They have to have a large mechanism for enforcement because there is resistance to the kind of theocracy that a particular religious group takes control and tries to assert because religions are very diverse things. So, so theocracies always become resented fascist states at some level. Just like rebellions, I mean, it's, it's exhilarating to be a rebel. It's not so fun to actually run a government. You go from being a freedom fighter to being someone in charge of the collection of trash. 
And, and in many ways, this is uh, the, the, the fate of, of all attempts to establish theocracy, is that they soon become resented as um, exploiters of power and as wheeling petty sort of political authority at the expense of the greater will. Um, it, it, it's, it's one of the ironies of theocracy is that they, they always end in disappointment. So uh, two quick things. One is, um, why is it, if I'm correct in, in what I've heard, that a majority or, or a large percentage of the um, religious Zionists, fundamentalists, are American? A, and B, they tend to come from the Northeast, and C, probably the New York area. They're from Brooklyn. So, what is that? Sorry to my friends from Brooklyn. So, is that is that true? Is that a true statement that there is this disproportionate, you know, uh, American uh, group within, if not all of it, a lot of the fundamentalist Zionist uh, people on the West Bank are from New York. Is that? A true statement and why? I, I think it is. Here's, here, here would be my uh, very unscientific measure of that is that there's, let's call it a substantial contingent. Right. Um, but it's very consistent with what we know from the sociology of religion that the idea of pursuing a religious Zionist agenda, which is sort of a subset of this idea of pursuing um, a fundamentalist goal of a resacralized theocracy and a return to original, true religious purity, these are narratives, right? These are discursive places rather than political, geopolitical realities, ra rather than actual places. And so for many people, this becomes part of how they imagine themselves and how they conceptualize themselves and construct identities about themselves. This is part of the way they, they, they share a symbolic universe with each other. So it's an idea, and it's an idea that becomes an ordering principle of reality for those who really embrace this strongly. But they engage in certain kinds of advocacy, especially financial and political advocacy. So that's one sort of way in which one can engage in the religious Zionist narrative from afar. Um, and then there's a smaller group who, um, return, who they move to Israel, or they live part of the year in Israel, or they serve in the Israeli military when they're younger. Um, and that, that's, that's a subset. But that these are still, I think, gestures in the direction of a uniquely modern way of conceptualizing religious identities. But why from New York? Why, why, what is going on in Brooklyn? That just, There's a lot of Jews there. Right? <laughs> so, there are a lot of Jews there, but someone is teaching them this ideology that they're then exporting, which is, I assume, we have you know, Uri's from Israel in the back, you can talk about later, but it's not an Israeli endemic theology. It seems that it's a majority coming from something in the, from the United States that's being exported to Israel. Now Israel's got to deal with these people, but we grew them. Here I'm not sure that I would just say that this is a contamination of the United States. There are a lot of Americans who went to Israeli yeshivas and, and sort of came back with religious Zionist ideals. There's been a, a, a very sort of fruitful exchange, a, a, a sort of there's a dialogical process going on there between that. Israel and New York, or Israel and the U.S. That, that there is, we have, we, we created this movement, it seems, in the Northeast of the United States of America, that then went to Israel and has taken root there. It's not a... I think they're, they're partners of, in its creation. I don't think it's, a, don't think it's an Israeli, it's a normal Israeli movement. When you watch the news of these people who are getting arrested, they all have an accent from New York. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so from Chicago. But you know, in the '60s, they limited they limited enrollment in middle middle American schools. They limited from the East Coast. They said they didn't want revolutionaries from the East Coast, and they meant East Coast Jews. They cut it back. I think it's critical mass. Well, it's there's something yeah. going on. Yeah. It's just from Kahana. I mean, Kahana came he's right New Yorker. Yeah. He's a New right. Yorker. And, 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 and his, his, his uh, progeny, you know, his, his ideological progeny out of that settlement area in Brooklyn have been feeding a lot of the movement. And it's now its incarnation is right. Well, I'm just saying, it seems to me that we've created this problem. Also, you should read the book Like Dreamers. Um, which is required reading on our Israel trips because this whole strand is very well um, described, very interesting. 
The second question I have before we close is, what do you call someone who's a religious Jew who moves to Israel but is not a fundamentalist, you know, violent individual who's a messianic person? So, because isn't that a religious Zionist? They're, they're an immigrant. No, you know what I mean? Right. So I have many friends who are modern Orthodox or traditional conservative. That's like B'nai Akiva. They move to Israel, so they wear a kippah, they observe Shabbat, but they are not, and I assume there's a, I don't know the numbers, I assume there's more than maybe there aren't, but they, so they're religious and they're Zionists, but they're not religious Zionists. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a different so group, they? right? That, so they, they are religious and they are in some ways Zionists, but the, right. the notion of, and this is a, an imprecise phrase for sure, but the notion of religious Zionism is used, that, that nomenclature is used to, to connote those who are um, pursuing a sort of distinctly religious agenda in particular through this mechanism of cosmic war, which I, I, I think it's interesting to see how this plays out in such precise analog to things that we see in other religious traditions and in other democracies that are facing, especially in the United States, that are facing substantial challenges from those who are opposed to secular democracy. And it, it, it's really that phenomenon I think is interesting. That's what, what I mean by religious Zionists. Other people who, who are religious who move to Israel and who are in some ways Zionists might in fact be very horrified by this narrative, um, right, as are in fact many Israelis. My point is, they would be horrified, but they are religious and they are Zionists. I don't know what to call them. Yeshayahu uh, Leibowitz was religious, yeah. he was very observant, and he was Zionist, and, and, and he thought that this was not only a bad idea, he thought this could really be right. completely destructive to the right. state. I, I'm very focused on terminology. We're close, I know, because we want to go. We're close. First of all, you weren't here last time. I am opposed to calling people ultra-Orthodox. I think mm -hmm. it is completely ridiculous. I think we should I call them fundamentalist Orthodox. That would be the term I suggest to all of you. That's mm -hmm. who they are. Also, religious Zionists, I don't like it because there are plenty of people, and I don't know the numbers, but I'm going to assume, maybe I'm wrong, there are more religious people who aren't you know, messianists. They're the religious and Zionists. Ari, you are correct, though. Are There's an evolution of that term. In the early days of, of the creation of the state, Israelis, uh, uh, Orthodox Zionists were, let's say, of the B'nai Akiva form. And they were the description that you have. The further evolution, especially out of Brooklyn, my home shtetl of three million. <laughs> so you ought to know that this province has three million people. Big diverse place. And, and yes. it's, a, it's a very diverse place. And it has, of course, a huge number of Jews. So you will have the outgrowth of the Maya Kahanas and so forth. But you're right about the early description of, of religious Zionists were not the crazies, my comment, not the extremists. Unfortunately, that term has been robbed. By, by a group of Haredi. Yeah, well, and that, well, that movement has shifted. I mean, Haredi, uh, B'nai Akiva has shifted to the right as well. There's, there's been a movement and a polarization as the tensions around both the meaning of, the religious meaning of, 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 of military violence and then the, the, the religious problematics of a secular democracy in Israel. Those have become much sharper problems now, especially when it relates to territory than they were, for instance, in the 1970s or even the 1980s. Okay, so it's been uh, a great time talking about the fundamental <laughs> violence with you all. Um, I'll go back to Kabbalah, this Shabbat. I, I, I urge you all to, you know, relax and don't hurt anybody on your way home. And have a nice and peaceful New Year. If you have any questions, uh, will you stick around for a few Yes, absolutely, I'll stick around. Okay, thank you guys. Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you.